shocking, I think, uh, how much false advertising we consume. And I emphasize false. I mean, since when was a concoction of artificial chemicals and sugar called Coca-Cola the real thing? You know, or do, do, do young men really attract women by wearing Lynx deodorant? Um, tell me if I'm wrong. I suspect it's, uh, it uh, drives them away as much as anything, let alone um, painting their room pink with Dulux paint. Um, we are acutely aware of such manipulation, of course. The advertisers have to work really hard to get under our, our uh, defences, usually by making us laugh, sometimes laughing at themselves. We, we, we laugh at little Russian meerkats, but we are hooked. The aim of all uh, uh, advertising, we must remember, though, is not to serve humanity much less to serve you or me. It is to boost the sales of the company, the profits of its shareholders, and therefore the pay packets of the employees. We know that. We know it's a game. Actually, we're aware of that kind of propaganda at a much broader level. I mean, it, there's, there, modern people are so aware that there's a lot of it at the heart of politics, too. Is it accidental that our pr- current prime minister was in advertising before he was in politics? Politicians of all stripes assure us that they want to help, for instance, hard-working families... And yet they use that phrase because in scores of focus groups it's been shown to tick the boxes of, their, uh, of, of the people that they're aiming at. It was Bill Clinton who first used it, the, the, uh, the, the, the king of sophisticated voter manipulation. We're deeply suspicious, rightly I think, when people detain the partner of a journalist under laws aimed at terrorists and um, we, we, we suspect it is not to, to uh, defend the public against terrorists, but to defend politicians and government departments from prying eyes. We've learned to be cynical about this world, far, more beyond, far beyond the, the uh, advertising in, industry. Most people accept we live in a world of smoke and mirrors where everyone is trying to deceive everyone else to their own advantages, advantage. But what if... Something more was going on. What if actually something far more sinister was going on? That's the thesis of uh, C.S. Lewis's little book. He's already been mentioned, quoted by Tim. He wrote a little book in 1942 entitled The Screwtape Letters, and it's still read today. He writes a series of imaginary letters from a senior demon, Screwtape, to his nephew, Wormwood. And they are working together for the devil, our father below, they call him, trying to subvert this young man called the patient. And uh, Lewis's thesis in that uh, book is that the whole of mankind actually is subject to manipulation and propaganda on a grand scale by Satan himself. We laugh at the advertising and bat it away. We get angry at the politicians and uh, uh, vote them out. But we barely notice the mass deception and subversion of the arch-deceiver himself, the devil. 
And Lewis, of course, for that book, got his ideas from the Bible. The Bible portrays the, the, the devil as very real. It's part of his propaganda to try and claim that he doesn't exist. He's very real. He's very clever. He is the father of lies. He's a murderer and he ranges throughout the world, says the Bible. And one of God's weapons against the devil's lies is wisdom that Sarah has already alerted us to, that we've we've been looking at in this book of Proverbs. Wisdom exposes the truth about the real world. Wisdom opens eyes. That's what we've been trying to see in this book of Proverbs, which is in, in, in some senses the centerpiece of wisdom in the Bible. Dan Steele, remember, he was, he was saying we need to scuba dive, we need to reflect deeply on Proverbs in order to understand this world. Daniel Blanche was saying we have to trust in the Lord, uh, lean not on our own understanding. You can't always figure everything out, but actually God does rule in this confusing world. And a big part of wisdom is simply about faith in God and in Jesus Christ. <laughs> And then uh, for the last few weeks, we've been looking at the book's call to, to see a wise life as the good life. The, but the book's called to sexual fidelity and faithfulness. The book's called to have a, a positive, appropriate, wise attitude to money, to work and relationships. You can listen to the series on the internet if you want. But today we've got to, to Proverbs chapter 7, which Tim read to us. And it won't have escaped your notice, it's primarily about sex. Sex is a primary drive for us, and it's not surprising. There are lots of biblical warnings about um, uh, the dangers of sex, and lots of warnings in, uh, in through, throughout Proverbs. And in fact, today, I want to I use Proverbs 7 in a slightly broader context, partly because we devoted a whole sermon a couple of weeks ago to Uh, what Proverbs says about sex, but partly because of this other issue, that what is being described here about the subversion of a young man in chapter 7 is in the immediate about him being sexually uh, um, uh, tempted, but far more it acts as a model and a pattern for a much bigger story about humankind that the Bible unfolds for us. Indeed, um, if you think about it, Proverbs 7 has strong overtones of Genesis chapter 3 of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They, together, were enticed by the beauty and the sweet taste of the fruit in the garden, deceived by the lies of Satan himself, no mere human, but Satan himself, and they too died. Yeah, the, the, um, uh, Proverbs 7 is definitely about sex, but it is about something much, much bigger than that. Contrary to uh, um, the views of a good number of sexually repressed monks in earlier centuries, Genesis 3 wasn't about them being just seduced into having sex. They were given each other to enjoy a sexual relationship and to multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 3 is about sin itself. Genesis 3 is about being um, seduced away from living life the way it ought to be, to misusing God's gifts in all their glory. And so is Proverbs 7.
Let's look at this story then in Proverbs 7 because it is, it is extraordinarily insightful and rich. Verses 6 and 7 describe the victim. At the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice and I saw among the simple, I noticed a, among the young men, a youth who had no sense. This youth is among the simple and to be simple is to be naive in the Bible and it's no sin at all. Naivety is not sin. It is endemic to the young um, and it is our natural state. Maybe a sin if we haven't learned things as we get older. Slightly more problematic in these verses to, to notice that he had no sense. Literally, he, he was without a heart, without a, without a core to his being. He doesn't reflect deeply on things. There is no core to who he is. He is, a, he is an archetypal postmodern man. All about surface, not about depth. I mean, if you listen to uh, Miss Elizabeth Bennet in the 19th century um, novel, Pride and Prejudice, agonising over the inner character of Mr. Darcy, and then you read an average men's magazine about how to have a six-pack, you will see how much our obsession has moved from depth to surface over the last 150 years. Our whole culture is designed to breed men and women without heart. But so far, this simple young man, he's just one of the lads, But he does start to wander, verse 8. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Is she notorious, this her corner, her house? Or is her notoriety actually known only in in the author's mind? We don't know. Is this young man reckless? He is out of, out of, uh, out while dark is, when the darkness is falling and there were no street lamps in those days. Is he perhaps just a bit naive? Is he, does he know all about her and is he wondering where he knows that temptation will present itself? We simply don't know. And actually, if you talk to people who've been seduced into, uh, into, one or other kind of failure, they will often say that they just don't know what their motivations were before the moment. They just wandered into temptation. And so far in this young man, there is no sin. Everyone gets themselves into difficult situations sometimes. But then out comes the hunter. We've seen the victim. Here's the hunter. Verse 10. Out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. And um, it is... Uh, the Bible is quite free in describing male characters as, as archetypal evil characters, the devil himself and female. Don't, don't get this as being a, being a comment on, the, uh, on gender. But here, here we have, in this case, she is a huntress. Crucially, she is all attractiveness, uh, external attractiveness and internal heartlessness. She's dressed like a prostitute, going beyond beauty to blatant sexual provocation, as the uh, commentator Derek Kidner puts it. She is dressed to kill, as we will see, literally. But her crafty intent, verse 10, there, is, is, prob- is literally a guarded, protected heart. Get the picture? 
No real, she doesn't come out with any real person-to-person engagement going on, at least on her part. She cares nothing, ultimately, for this young man. I think in today's world they call such women cougars on the hunt for fresh meat. It's obviously the case with the prostitute. She doesn't even bother with names. It's obviously the case far too often in politics as politicians are are elected to serve us but then are exposed as simply serving themselves. It was obviously the case in communist countries which used the propaganda of the rule of the proletariat ultimately just to bolster the position of a few and uh, even when those few get prosecuted it's a show trial. And it is the underlying assumption actually of, of capitalism ultimately. Capitalism is built on the doctrine that people will be greedy and selfish, so let's harness that power. It is the narrative of all advertising, which presents a product to us in as, in as beguiling a way as possible, but with a guarded heart. There is no real concern for the consumer, no matter what they climb claim, just for their profits. And since the rise of uh, Richard Dawkins and the new radical atheists, it's an absolute mantra for that influential group. Dawkins' first book was was The Selfish Gene. His thesis was that we are hardwired to be selfish. Mary Midgley, um, amongst many others, has critiqued it. She is a very insightful philosopher. Um, And uh, she's written, for instance, a book entitled The Solitary Self. Selfish gene leads to a solitary self, leads to a loneliness, leads to a guardedness of heart that is obsessed about manipulating others but never really connects with others. That is a mark of Satan's work in this world. Lewis put it in the Screwtape Letters very vividly. Remember, this is a demon writing to another demon. To us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of all its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy, that's, remember, the God of Jesus Christ, the obedience which the enemy demands of men is quite different. One must face the fact, says Screwtape, that all that talk of his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but a truth. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flow overs. Our war aim is a world in which our father below has drawn all other beings into himself. The enemy wants a world full of human beings united to him, but still distinct, says Screwtape. This enemy propaganda of outward show and guarded heart is actually the warp and woof of our world. It is out there. 
just like this woman. She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she, lurk, she lurks. It is, the, it is the roar, it is the background noise, it is, it, is the, it, is the, it is the water we swim in, it is the oxygen we breathe, this stuff. The world is full of hunters. And here are the tactics, verses 13 onwards. Shock. First, she took hold of him and kissed him. It just presented itself to me out of the blue. Never mind the fact that we were wandering a little bit too close there. Actual temptation often just catches us completely by surprise. And there is always a convincing backstory. Verse 14, today... I have fulfilled my vows. I've made food from, I have food from my fellowship offering at home. Uh, this pseudo virtuous backstory is very, very powerful in seducing us. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm good to my life partner. I deserve a bit of fun. I work hard on a low pay. I deserve a little perk, a little extra. My life is full of slaving for others. I deserve this bit of me time, this bit of selfishness. Shock, a convincing, pseudo-virtuous backstory. And then there is perhaps the most powerful one, verse 15, flattery. I came out to meet you. I've looked for you and I've found you. I wasn't just looking for anyone. No, I was looking for you. You're the one, because you're worth it, says L'Oreal. Now, you may be worth it, but I'm afraid I have some bad news for you. You you are not being told by L'Oreal how much you are worth because the company has a genuine concern to build up your sense of self-esteem. Because it loves you. It does not care about you. Only profit. Test it for a minute. Suppose there's some research that another, uh, another cosmetic uh, does even better than L'Oreal. Do they put out an advertisement? Because you're worth it, we want you to go and buy this other company's cosmetics. Oh, It's all about you, says the hunter. Next tactic, sensuous appeal, verse 16. I have covered my bed with coloured linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. Um, image is so powerful, whether you use the, uh, the, the coloured linens of Egypt, as she did, or David Beckham from Essex. Image will get you where you want. Aromas are deeply seductive, as uh, um, so many companies will tell you. But most potent of all is the potent idea. Let's drink deeply of love. You know, you, Mrs. Seductress, have no such intention. I already know your heart is closed. 
And yet from the, from the very form of that sentence, you are tempting me. I can feel myself dazzled by the image. I can feel myself intoxicated with the Roma. I can feel myself utterly captivated by that idea of drinking deeply with love. I almost don't care that you're telling me a barefaced lie because I'm being sucked in. And don't think sex only. Think all the other ways in which we are seduced. I might wake up, see the real moral danger I'm in. So let's add some reassurance to that. My husband, verse 19, is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home till noon. There will be no consequences. Just one more drink. You will not kill that person you're going to run into when you drive home. Just a little dalliance. You will not ruin your marriage and live with regret for the rest of your life. Just a, a little massaging of the expenses. You won't lose your job and regret it forever. Just, just that, this little indulgence, it will not have consequences. Well, nine times out of ten, perhaps not. And then the tenth time, it shapes the whole of your future. And on it goes, as smooth and beguiling as a, as a delicious drink. Verse 21, with persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. But the drink had poison in it. There's the hunter, there's, there's the tactics. Here's the kill. Verse 22. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. All at once. Sin is often associated with such a brief turning point which sets our course. You know, a glance at the, uh, across the room. Will, will he walk across and, and talk to her? Psychologists say that that decision is made in the first 10 seconds. A brief moment, a life-shaping decision. Like, like a, a deer stepping into a noose. could not know that it will be trapped and held bound until the, the spear comes and pierces its liver. Like a bird stepping into a snare, it could not know that that little mistake leaves it trapped until the hunter turns up and takes it out and wrings its neck. There it is. That is the way so much of the world deals with one another. That is, says the Bible, ultimately the way Satan deals with us. We are seduced. What do you want out of life? You want a nice, secure house, do you? 
Well, we need that. But you know, if that becomes the center of your, your, your whole interest, you will find that life gets very, very shallow until finally you meet God face to face. You want money, do you? Well, if that actually is the focus of your whole concern, then you will find that it delivers nothing and leaves you rich, but it poor in so many other ways until you meet God face to face. You You want respect and status in a job. Well, I tell you, you may get that, and you will find that actually it's pretty lonely there at the top of the mountain and pretty cold until finally you meet God face to face. You want a life partner to devote yourself to. Well, if that is your idol, then you will find that whoever you marry becomes a disappointment to you. And you will either live with disappointment or you will restlessly search for another until finally you meet God face to face. And he will not say, well done for chasing all of those things. He will say, what did you do with me? What did you do with Jesus Christ? Because you see, Jesus came as the opposite of that woman. Within Proverbs, actually, there is an opposite woman. She is the woman wisdom. She pops up again and again and again. She pops up in verse 4. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and to insight, you are my relative. Love her, says Proverbs, because she, wisdom, is the best lover, the best family member, and she will give you life and joy and freedom. And then the New Testament takes that concept of wisdom and it says, here in Jesus is the epitome of wisdom. He doesn't just teach wisdom, he is wisdom. You, As you become united to Jesus, you find the life and freedom and joy that you are looking for, looking for because unlike everyone else in the whole of history. They're not ultimately looking after their own interests, but he was absolutely devoted to looking after our interests. He was not brash and bold and attractive. Isaiah would say in Isaiah 53, he had, he had uh, no appearance to make us attracted to him. But he was God the Son, giving himself, dying on the cross, paying for the penalty for all of our sins, giving everything of himself, even his life, that we now could come to meet God and we could know that we would face God on that last day. And he would say, well done properly. Because we found the way to true freedom because we sought God's forgiveness through Jesus' death on the cross. And we would find life, not just life now, though that is promised to Christians, 
but eternal life because Jesus rose from the dead as the great promise that actually all those who follow him will rise to and be with him in his new creation and live forever as we were meant to live. That's the solution. There's a tongue-in-cheek article um, written in a national newspaper recently, which is doing the rounds at the moment. It asks, are atheists mentally ill? It's uh, joking in some certain respects. It's not a Christian writing, but he points out that the benefits that are associated with faith are so numerous and so well documented that even on the basis of simply choosing a happy life, people should choose faith, some kind of faith that at least. And he asked mischievously, is it then a mental illness that makes people so obsessively promote something that does them no good? Well, take it as as it is. It's a joke, but it says very provocatively what the Bible also says, very provocatively. Wake up, human beings. There is a mass seduction going on here. Clever advertising, political slogans, they are the tip of the iceberg. We are being led by the nose, by Satan himself, to the slaughterhouse. Open your eyes to real love. It's not this here. It's Jesus on the cross. Open your eyes to real life. It's not this. This kills. It's resurrection life that Jesus achieved. This afternoon we'll baptise Tim. Um, I think he won't mind me saying that it's not been a totally straight path to faith. But one thing that he said to me, and you may say more this afternoon, was that actually it's been like waking up coming to this point. Open your eyes, says the Bible. See what everything else in the world is doing. And then see Jesus. Jesus.